This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. In July 1791, a strange messenger showed up in Mozart's life. He asked him to compose a requiem for however much money the composer wanted, as long as he did it quickly. And some say this messenger was simply an envoy of Count Franz von Balzeg, who was looking for a way to honor his dead wife. But others say he was sent by Freemasons to slash Mozart's throat. Uh-oh. That seems like quite a leap. Well, welcome to the mystery of Mozart's death. So Mozart takes the commission, this mysterious commission, whoever it's from. But he doesn't finish the Requiem right away because he has other work to finish first. La Clemenza de Tito for Emperor Leopold's coronation. But he promises this antsy messenger that he'll get right to work on it as soon as he returns to Vienna from Prague. And his work went well in Prague, but he was in ill health for most of the time that he was there. But despite feeling sick, he was in a good mood. His last known letter, which was to his wife in October 1791, said he'd taken his rival, composer Antonio Salieri, to see the magic flute, and that Salieri loved it and even gave out a few bravo. Yes. (laughs) So... He gets back to Vienna, and he seems a little sicker, though, and and more depressed. And he continues with the Requiem, but he's not quite himself. And in November, Mozart takes to his bed. Fifteen days later, he's dead. December 5th, 1791, he's only 35 years old. And since we're sleuthing, let's examine the evidence we have. This is the scene on the day of his death. He's still working on the Requiem, and he sees some friends. They all sing parts of the Requiem together. But at some point during that day, it became clear that things had taken a turn for the worse. And one of his doctors, Dr. Closet, was summoned. But he was at a play and decided he would rather stay until the end of the play. You need a new doctor, Mozart. Well, and how would you like that as your legacy? You're the doctor who stayed till the end of the play while Mozart <laughs> was dying. Didn't help out Mozart. 
So when Closet finally does get on the scene, he does what he can, but he can't save Mozart. And according to Sophie, who is the sister of Mozart's wife, uh, in this essay written by Albert Borowitz. Yeah, the, it's really good. Uh, the last thing that Mozart does is imitate the kettle drums in the Requiem, which is so appropriate that his, his last words aren't really weren't words, words, at, words all. at all. And he fell into unconsciousness two hours before his death. He was lucid up till then. And he was buried in a mass, unmarked grave. Salieri followed his coffin to the cemetery, but his wife and most of his friends did not. Which we should make a point there, too. A, a mass, unmarked grave sounds, oh, it sounds slightly so disturbing, but it's pretty common for someone of Mozart's class during this time. The it, following to the, not following him to the grave, though. That's weird. It's very strange. Uh, his wife was supposedly prostrate with grief, which, you know, you can completely understand. Um, other stories say that there was some sort of wintry storm that turned everyone back, but there's no evidence of that if you look back to the weather of long, long ago. So that's one of those Something things that, fishy. Still, that still bothers our historians. But less than a week after his death, a paper printed the possibility that Mozart was poisoned, and most people thought Salieri did it. So is poisoning a reasonable possibility? Well, consider what we know. So let's start with Mozart's symptoms. So the best source we have about Mozart's death comes from Constanza's sister, Sophie, who we mentioned earlier, because she actually wrote things down relatively soon after his death, as opposed to decades later or something. So Sophie said that he had a swollen body, the, quote, taste of death in his mouth and a fever. We also know that he was vomiting and he had diarrhea and that he was covered in a rash. But there's no autopsy, so there's no official report of all of this. And the doctors don't even fill out death certificates. Church registers have a little bit of information. We find his cause of death there listed as severe miliary fever, but that's not a cause of death? No, it's just a, a name for a collection of symptoms. Yeah, it, it's it's what killed him. It's the symptoms that killed him. So first we'll look at what else could explain these symptoms, not poisoning. Uh, rheumatic fever, grip, tuberculosis, dropsy, meningitis, heart failure, Graves' disease, chronic kidney disease, stroke, parasites, or my favorites, overwork, and irregular living. It is Mozart. Come on. So Dr. William J. Dawson wrote in the journal Medical Problems of Performing Artists, which is yes, a real journal. journal. They get that specific. He wrote that... Other researchers have suggested a total of 118 possible causes of death. So that was our, our short list. I, I didn't want to read all 118. Or rather, I did, but I didn't think you would want to hear it. <laughs> but kidney disease is currently considered the most likely culprit. So at the end, his kidneys failed, and that's why his body was so swollen. Uh, uremia explains many of his symptoms, even the rash, which might sound strange that you know your kidneys failing would cause a rash, but your kidneys do a lot more than you think. So take care of your organs, everyone. But part of the reason why it's considered so likely that he did die of kidney failure is that kidney failure can be caused by streptococcal infections earlier in life. And Mozart had his fair share of childhood illnesses. According to his father's writing, he had scarlet fever, which can lead to kidney disease, rheumatic fever, also leads to kidney disease, possibly abdominal typhus, which, which yeah, almost killed his sister. Yeah, and smallpox and toothache. So oh, and and I would like to add, in case you didn't know, untreated dental conditions can lead to bacteria getting into your bloodstream and killing you. So take care of your teeth. Katie's PSA for the for podcast. discovery health. <laughs> 
So Leopold, Mozart's father, also liked to treat his own kids' uh, childhood conditions with mysterious things like black powder. Yeah, that's so, what he called it, black powder. So, I mean, the point is, Leopold might not be the best source for medical information, but unfortunately, he's the only source we have for Mozart's childhood illnesses. But some say that renal failure just doesn't fit, because if his kidneys were failing, why wasn't he tired or thirsty near the end? Why was he conscious until two hours before his death? And we're relying on his dad's testimony to diagnose earlier illnesses. He's, you know, not a doctor. And his sister had most of the same ailments, but she turned out fine. So... This brings us to the fallacious conclusion that Mozart was poisoned. And we get that idea from Constanza, his wife. And according to the Borowitz article that we mentioned earlier, this is what she tells one biographer. Mozart began to speak of death and declared that he was writing the Requiem for himself. Tears came to the eyes of this sensitive man. I feel definitely, he continued, that I will not last much longer. I am sure I have been poisoned. I cannot rid myself of this idea. Mozart really did think he was being poisoned, and he thought it might be arsenic. Others have suggested mercury, but that was a little bit hard to get. It was used only to treat syphilis, so a poisoner would have to be a little tricky to get his or her hands on it. And that's when a myth arose that Mozart was trying to treat his own syphilis with mercury, just from someone misreading. Misunderstanding the the sources, you know. And poison wasn't an uncommon weapon of murder at the time, so this isn't too far-fetched. But if he was poisoned, who did it? So it is, of course, rumored that on his own deathbed, Mozart's competitor, Salieri, confessed to murdering him before trying to kill himself. And I have Amadeus coming on my Netflix (laughs) queue soon, so I'm lucky to find out more about this little theory in a few days, I guess. This doesn't happen, though, according to the men who were there with them. But people believe it, partly because they believed it all along. Salieri was one of the leading composers of his day. He was a favorite of Joseph II, and we all know what royal favor means, influence and lots of perks that you can use against your professional enemies. A contemporary called him, quote, a clever, shrewd man possessed of what Bacon called crooked wisdom, unquote. And Mozart was definitely his rival, so Salieri tries to sabotage him when he can and took away patrons and theaters and possibly even disrupted a performance of Figaro. But that was professionally, and we should make that distinction. Because personally, it seems like they were pretty okay with each other. Right. Remember that letter about him yelling bravo after accompanying Mozart to that performance of the magic flute. And, you know, they lent each other scores from their libraries. And they did have to interact in social situations. And it's not like they were standing on opposite sides of the room, sharks and jets style. You know, (laughs) they were saying hello. And he also followed the coffin, as we mentioned, and later taught one of Mozart's sons And if Constanza had thought that he was the killer, surely she would not have let that happen. Regardless, though, at a performance of the Ninth Symphony in 1824, leaflets are handed out accusing Salieri of the crime. And I guess the rumor has really only picked up steam since then. Very cruel intentions, that's all I can think of. But we get a rebuttal almost immediately. A friend publishes a letter from a doctor who is a friend of Mozart's doctor. Telephone. Medical history telephone. Convoluted there. But saying that plenty of people were sick with rheumatic fever in Vienna at the time, and then the men with him 
in his last days said that the confession story was just made up. Salieri never confessed to murdering Mozart. But the damage had already been done. And of course, that's how we think of him today, not as this great composer and the teacher of Beethoven, Schubert, and Liszt, but as the man who might have poisoned Mozart. And since we base so much of this on Mozart's own beliefs about his health, about, you know, thinking he was being poisoned, could there be another explanation? You know, perhaps he was just tired and overworked and got a little paranoid. And Been working since he's five years old. <laughs> well, he's a genius, so he gets excuses for that sort of thing. German music historian Hermann Abert referred to his, quote, morbidly overstimulated emotional state, end quote. And, you know, if you're Mozart, you can you can be a little overstimulated. But still, we've we've got to remember that his wife does always insist that Mozart was poisoned. So does his son, Carl. So the family is on the poisoning side. Oh, but Sarah, there's there's a totally different thing that we haven't covered yet. And best of all, (laughs) maybe he was murdered by Freemasons, which is something that persists to this day. So Mozart became a Mason in 1784, and even then, or especially then, the Freemasons were regarded with suspicion by both rulers and the people. But he wrote many pieces for the Masons, and it's believed that the magic flute is the most famous, the one that's most loaded with meaning. So if you are writing the magic flute for someone, why would they kill you? As a sacrifice, Sarah, (laughs) as a sacrifice. Or they were punishing him for telling Mason secrets in the magic flute, or they were punishing him for not telling enough about the Masons in the magic flute. That's my favorite theory. (laughs) There's not enough Masons in the magic flute. And some of the proponents of the Freemason uh, idea were also anti-Semites, so they said perhaps it was a Jew. As we have seen in history, the Jewish people were often implicated in schemes in which they had no part. So will we ever know... Why no. Mozart died? If, if he was murdered, who killed him? What exactly happened? We can't exhume, Sarah. We can't because he's buried in that mass grave, so we can't dig him up. But stories like this appear a lot in the news. These, these stories about how did someone die? What yeah. really happened? I've seen two. I saw one about Edgar Allan Poe and one about Jane Austen the other day, what that final illness was. When we did our, our Medici episode not that long ago. Right. The, the feuding journals, medical journals. But of course, why does it matter to us? And I've got a quote from an article by Daniel J. Waken in the New York Times. The very idea that remarkable individuals who gave life so much beauty could be brought down by ordinary physical ailments, particularly diseases that are now easily treatable, is inherently fascinating. That perception makes people of genius seem closer to us. And I think he has something there. Definitely. And of course, people always like a good conspiracy story. And for more of that, you should check out uh, one of our video podcasts, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. I was watching one on Pope John Paul I and his mysterious death the other day. We should also thank one of our music podcasters from a podcast from the past, Stuff from the B-Side, John Fuller, for suggesting this topic, which uh, it's good to have folks looking out for cool musical history topics for you. Well, and we like accepting your topic ideas in email, historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. But a quicker way to get to us is probably through our Twitter feed at Missed in History or our Facebook fan page because we can respond to you in real time. And if you'd like to learn a bit more about geniuses like Mozart, 
You should check out our article, How Geniuses Work, which you can search for on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review (laughs) spells help me. It seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini-platforms. I'm Scott Janovitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.